I'm glad you're here, and I want us to visit together for a few minutes, because I think most of us, maybe all of us in this room, have a common desire. I hope we do. The desire is this, to be people who make a difference in the world in which we live. That we do not just want to occupy space, consume goods, make and spend. But as the philosopher said, we want to plant a tree under which we may never plan to sit. We want to leave something that will make a difference in the future. I believe all of us probably share that. I hope we do. William Manchester, in his book about Winston Churchill, said that Churchill delighted in having guests for dinner, both at noon and the evening, when possible, and he liked to have a great variety of people in so that the conversation would be spirited and vigorous. But he said he liked to be in the company of men and women who had done something with their lives. Don't you? All of us, with the help and the leadership of God and the encouragement of others, every one of us, were put here by God to do something with our lives. What kind of a person do I want to be? What kind of a person do you want to be? What kind of person do we as a church and we as churches want to be? Very relevant question. Frankly, I've been thinking about this sermon even more than the sermon preached last week in the dedication of these facilities. My thinking and studying and praying on this subject goes back to three weeks because we're at a very pivotal moment in the life of our church. The tendency is to look around and say, we have these marvelous facilities now, and they nearly completed and certainly in use, and we're grateful for them. My goodness, how grateful we are for them. And the tendency is to think, well, that's it. That's it. Well, it's not it. These marvelous facilities are here to be used to accomplish something that is it. And buildings don't do that. People do that in buildings, outside of buildings. But what makes a difference in life? You. People. And these marvelous structures that help us worship and study and have fellowship in such constructive and positive surroundings are here to facilitate, just simply that, to facilitate our own personal spiritual growth to be difference makers in our world. And you find, I do at least, a very appropriate passage of Scripture for us on this day and as we face a very promising, challenging, exciting future. A pivotal passage of Scripture in the Bible, as you will recognize if you're familiar with the book of Acts at all, the 16th chapter, and I'd like those of you who have your Bibles to turn to it, I would urge all of you to make yourself familiar with it because it's a, it's a kind of fulcrum in the book of Acts. Something changes there that makes a dramatic difference for us and for the world. 16th chapter of the book of Acts. Now, let me parenthetically say just a word. It is the Acts of the Apostles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the 
those who declare the good news. They bring the gospel of Christ to us. And what is that gospel supposed to do in the world? It is supposed to produce a different kind of behavior. It is supposed to be lived out in the lives of people, which is why the fifth book of the New Testament written by the man who wrote the third gospel, Luke, is about the acts of the apostles, not the words of the apostles, not the philosophy of the apostles. Those are all important, but the real test, the acts of the apostles. What kind of people are these Christians? What kind of character does Christ produce? What kind of churches does he create out of the corporate fellowship of these characters? For a church is nothing more than the amalgamated combination of the spirits, the personalities, the attitudes that make up that fellowship. So here you have the church in action. And here is Paul along with Timothy and Silas and Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and who also, as I've mentioned, wrote the book of Acts of the Apostles. They've been building churches. They've been preaching. They've been evangelizing as representatives of the church in Antioch, their home base. And Paul had come now to the western shore of Asia Minor and his back was to the sea thinking that his responsibility was to Asia Minor. And you'll read in the first part of this chapter, and I'm going to give you kind of an overview of it rather than read it because the message is really on the whole chapter. I'm going to give you a quick picture of it, and I hope that you will take some time later in your own personal reading to fill in some of the blanks because we cannot touch all of the important pertinent points in this marvelous passage of Scripture. But here is Paul, in a sense, paralyzed at that moment, wondering which way to go because he wanted to go back into Bithynia, as it says here. He wanted to, to go into Asia Minor. He wanted to go back into Galatia. And it says the Holy Spirit prevented him. God said no. God closed the door. That's a provocative statement even in itself. Here he wanted to go back where he had been, and God said, no, you don't go there. And so here he is with his back to the sea, and suddenly something happens. It's called a vision. I do not know the manner in which it came. Maybe he saw something, uh, some sort of symbol in the sky. Maybe a, a figure came to him. Maybe a living human being, just like you or I, walked up to him. We don't know the circumstances, but he, something happened in his inner seeing, his inner thinking, and someone from Macedonia, Macedonia, where's Macedonia? It's the other way. It's west. It's across that little finger of sea there. It's toward a whole new area, heretofore unpreached, unevangelized. Come over here, Paul, and help us. And so here Paul suddenly says, hey, maybe I'm going to go in a new direction. Maybe we're supposed to go. Never thought of it. Never dawned upon me. We thought we were to concentrate our efforts and energy. In Asia Minor, today's Turkey. But no, God's saying, that door's closed for now. I want you to move in another direction. And every time you think about this passage of Scripture, you ought to thank God that the Lord moved Paul in that direction because we are the result of that detour. That was the gospel moving to Europe and consequently to us. I think it's the most important, significant detour in all of history because it was God's plan to bring the gospel west, and he did. And Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, maybe some others, set sail from Troas and sailed across to Philippi, a colony. That meant it was a very prominent Roman city. So where did he go when he got there? Well, he heard about a prayer meeting that a group of women were having, and so he went to a prayer meeting. They held it by a book outside somewhere in a quiet place. And there was a woman there named Lydia. The scripture of the King James says she was a seller of purple. That simply means that she was in the dry goods business. She was a businesswoman. Now, that seems rather strange in the first century world, doesn't it? 
But it seems rather current in the 20th century world. The Bible is very applicable if we'll just let it be. Maybe she was a widow. Maybe she'd been divorced. Maybe she'd never married. Anyway, whatever the circumstances, here's a woman, Lydia, a woman who worshipped God. She was a respectable member of society. She was a productive member of her community. A good woman. And Paul began to talk to her and he said, you know, Lydia, I have, so I have kind of the same story you do. I grew up in a very religious family and I was in the synagogue all the time and I studied the law and I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and I tried to be righteous by my own acts. I worked harder at it than anybody you can ever imagine. In fact, I was even responsible for killing a man named Stephen because I disagreed with him so much over the question of religion. And then you know something, Lydia? Christ came into my life. And I want to share with you what the Lord has done. You're a good woman, but God can make you better through Jesus Christ. He can put a new power in your life. He can give you a new motive for living. He can bring you a peace that religion will never give you. He will bring you an unconditional forgiveness that religion can never provide. Lydia, I want you to meet Jesus Christ. And the scripture says the Lord opened her heart in a very tender, quiet, secluded place. Lydia became a Christian. The first convert in the Western woman, Western world was a businesswoman. And she said, I want all of you to come to my house because that's going to be the church. They all went to Lydia's house and that was their headquarters. The first church in the Western world was in Lydia's house. The church at Lydia's house. Now, this is not my house. This is a church house. We used to meet in homes. Churches did. They didn't have any buildings like this for two or three hundred years. They'd meet outdoors, meet in people's homes. But finally, the church got so big, they needed to build a church house. And that's why I like Quaker terminology. This is not the church. You're the church. This is just where the church meets. The Quakers say this is the church house. You and I are the church. The church was not Lydia's house. That's just where they met to get warm. And they went there to encourage each other and to pray for each other, but they also went there so they could get out of there and do something. That's just where they met to get warm. And they went there to encourage each other and to pray for each other, but they also went there so they could get out of there and do something about it. And a church that doesn't have that kind of result as consequence to its worship is not true to the New Testament church. You and I don't serve Jesus Christ by coming to church. He serves us. He reassures us. He forgives us. He comes to us in encouragement. Our service for Christ begins when worship ends. And the folks at Lydia's house understood that. So Paul went out and he and Silas on their way to pray again ran into a woman in the streets who was having all kinds of problems. She was a slave woman. She had a personal need in her own life. She was a fortune teller. She worked the streets. She was owned by some despicable characters in that community who gained revenue out of her weakness. And she followed Paul and Silas for a number of days and cried after them. These men are the servants of the Most High God. These men are the servants of the Most High God. These men are the servants of the Most High God. She was crying out, creating a public disturbance. But Paul, in his wisdom, recognized that this woman was hungry in her heart for something right and something meaningful. And even though the words she was saying were true, the truth had not yet gotten encapsulated inside of her. And Paul said, listen, I want you to let Jesus Christ come into your life and he'll push the darkness out of your life. And that spirit that's driving you, that spirit that's motivating you, that spirit that's upsetting you, that spirit of uncertainty and fear, it will dissipate as surely as the dew dissipates before the morning sun if you'll let Jesus Christ come into your life. And she did. 
Second member of the church at Lydia's house, this woman. Well, when the church begins to get out of the prayer meeting out on the street corner, it begins to cause a little reaction. Every action causes an opposite and equal reaction. So they had a reaction in Philippi. The men who owned that woman, they didn't take that lightly at all. I mean, it stepped on their financial toes, and they were incensed. So they had Paul and Silas arrested, took them into the center of town, and had them beaten and accused them. It's interesting if you'll read carefully the accusation they made against them. The accusation didn't have anything to do with the reason. That's often the case. They wanted to put a facade of respectability upon a very selfish motive. And generally we do that. That's sort of human nature. It was for them. They said these men are saying things that are against Caesar's custom, which wasn't what Paul was doing at all. But that was the accusation. So they whipped them and threw them into jail. And the Philippian jailer locked their feet fast in stocks, the Scripture tells us, and thrust them into the innermost prison. You know the story now, I'm sure. The earthquake came when Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises unto God. The earthquake came there. Bonds were loose. The doors flew open. The walls began to shake. The dust began to fly. And the Philippian jailer thought they'd all escaped and he was going to kill himself because he knew his life would be required by Roman law if the man did escape. And Paul saw him and said, Wait a minute, buddy. Don't do that. Stop. Do yourself no harm. We are all here. And the man grabbed the light, came in and fell down in front of Paul and said, What must I do to have what you fellows have? What must I do to have the kind of joy you have at midnight with your backs bleeding? What must I do to be saved? And Paul said, This is it. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the man believed. And then he said, come on down to my house. I want you to meet my family. Took him down to the family. Paul talked to the family. Every member of the family became Christians. That Philippian jailer took a basin of water and began to wash the back of Paul and Silas. Put a meal before them. They had dinner together. And it says that house was filled with joy. And then they all went down to the church at Lydia's house. You get toward the end of the 16th chapter. We're there now. And Paul met all of them down there at Lydia's house. Lydia's family, the woman from the street, many of her friends probably, the Philippian jailer, his family and friends, all crammed into Lydia's house. And they had fellowship together and they worshiped together. And Paul, the scripture says, encouraged them. And then he said to himself, okay, Christ is planted in this community now. He has a body here. He has a fellowship here. He has a family here. Come on, Silas, Luke, Timothy. We've got to go somewhere else, and they headed for Thessalonica. Okay, that's a quick overview of the story. Now I want to lift out three or four quick thoughts that I hope will stick in your mind as maybe some pegs on which to hang some living for the future. How were they people, how did they become people that could be used and make a difference? First of all, Paul had to be sensitive and open to change. He would never have become a Christian in the first place if he hadn't been open to change. Sometimes Christians become Christians and suddenly they have a hardening of the attitudes as though they were always Christians. All of us have had to change or we wouldn't be Christians because we're born again as Christians. We're not born into it because we're Americans or because we go to school or because we're Baptists or whatever. So change is essential to meeting Christ. And Paul had had that first change in his life, and now he saw, hey, maybe God wants me to move in some new directions I've never gone before and employ some methods I've never employed before and talk to some people I've never talked to before, irreligious people, street people, jailers, 
not just the religious leaders of a community. Maybe I'm supposed to be open. And if you and I are ever going to be people who change the world, we've got to be open to new information. I am perplexed by a kind of fear that I feel in some sections of America today about fear of information. As though somehow information is going to corrupt us. Paul would never have made the changes he made if he hadn't been open to something new. You ever read Forbes magazine? Well, Forbes of Forbes magazine said education is replacing a closed, no, excuse me, replacing an empty mind with an open mind. And that mind is to stay open to what God is saying and doing in your life and in mine and in the life of this church and other churches. Socrates said that his mission to the young men of Athens was to lead them from unconscious ignorance to conscious ignorance. To realize that we don't know and never will know all that there is to know. And when Christ comes into our lives, we're to gain information from every available source and filter that information through the person of Christ, Christianize it, turn it into positive, creative fuel for the living of these days. I know some people are just opposed to change of any kind. It's hard for some people to kind of loosen up and turn around and maybe go in another way, or read a different book, or think a different thought. Sometimes that attitude gets into church. I heard about a church where they were having a building program, incidentally, where they were having a building program, and a number of people in the church thought that the church ought to have a new chandelier. Well, there was a man in the church who got his kicks out of opposing everything. That was sort of his reason for existence be in opposition to things. They were talking about this new chandelier, and this man got up in the church business meeting, conference meeting, and he said, I'm opposed to the new chandelier for three reasons. One, it will cost too much. Two, we don't have anybody in this church who'd know how to play it if we had it. <laughs> and third, what this church needs is not a new chandelier. What this church needs is more light. <laughs> the extent of a lot of our opposition. Open, got to move on. Second quality, believing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time Paul had an opportunity, in one word or one way or another, he said that to people. He said it to Lydia because she opened her heart to the Lord. She said it to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He no doubt said it to that woman in the street because, my friend, you'll never get a life change just by giving negative commands. You can give those all day long. Negative commandments will never produce a positive change. Only a positive force, Jesus Christ, in your heart and in your life can produce a positive change that will have any lasting effect and any lasting value. So everywhere Paul went, he went preaching Christ. He believed he believed. Now I want to say a word about believing in Christ is over against believing. I want you to let that word believe for just a moment be a synonym for agree. I believe in a lot of people I don't agree with on every issue. Some of the best friends I've had for over 40 years are people that I don't agree with about a lot of things. but I believe in them. 
I believe in their character. I believe in their integrity. I believe in their honesty, and I would trust my life to them. If you demand 100% agreement on every issue before you're going to have fellowship, you're never going to have fellowship with anybody. Believe in Christ. I don't understand all about him. I've spent 40 years trying to understand more and more, and if God gives me that many more years, I'm going to go on trying to find out more and more about what he meant when he said what he said, and how do you apply it to life, and what is the meaning of all of this. But I believe him, and my faith is not in what I know. My faith is in who I know, and I know Jesus Christ. Quick example. Suppose you took... Uh, you, you can sort of bring your own guest list. I'll bring mine. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a meeting, and I'm going to have Billy Graham, and I'm going to have Pope John Paul, and uh, let's move around and get a lot of different people. I'm going to get Martin Luther, and we'll bring in Martin Luther King. Uh, we'll get Robert Schuller. We'll get Norman Vincent Peale. We'll get uh, Jerry Falwell. Uh, we'll get um, um, Martin Niemöller. Uh, we'll get Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we'll get John Wesley, we'll get John Wayne, we'll get them all in a room together, all these people who have been mightily used by God in one way or another, and we're going to say to them, you guys get together on what you believe and then go out and preach it. They'll die in that room. <laughs> They'll never come out of there agreeing on everything. But you go around and interview every one of them, Martin, John, Billy, Pope, where is your ultimate personal faith? And I don't know all of those people, but I know a, lot, a number of them in person and all of them by books. And I believe I can say for every one of them, they will say, my faith is in Jesus Christ. Now, I had something similar to that happen to me. I was in a meeting about uh, 10 years ago at a hotel at the DFW airport. It was very secretive, not because I was there, but because some of the people that were invited in. And if I were to call the names of the 12 or 15 people who were there, you would know maybe all of them. You'd know some of them very well from television or from religious leadership fame of one sort or another. We met there for a day and a half. We agreed that we were never going to agree on every issue. And we didn't. Had some strong disagreement on a number of issues. But around that room, every one of us, and before the meeting over, together on our knees, praying to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And my friend, what makes us brothers is not agreement on every single issue of significance. What makes us brothers is our personal faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, you don't have to get your theology right first and then come to Christ. You don't have to get your life right first and then come to Christ. You don't have to get your philosophy right first and come to Christ. You don't have to do anything first but come to Christ and he'll help you with your theology and your philosophy and your attitude and your values. Believe him. Trust him. Give him your heart. I only have time to mention, written here in the margin of my Bible, some other words that characterize 
the person who makes a difference. They're praying people. Have you noticed in each of these instances, Paul was praying or on his way to pray? As Tennyson said, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. They were open. They were believing. They were praying people. They were singing people. Paul singing. Part of early Christian worship. Singing together. They were healing people. They healed people. I think one of the most beautiful pictures in the New Testament is that Philippian jailer washing the back of Paul and Silas. He had agreed with that punishment. He had supported it. Maybe he had helped do it. And here he is washing wounds. Isn't that what Christians are here to do? We're not here to inflict wounds. We're to, heal, we're to heal them. Heal them. Every one of you in this room have the gift of healing. Well, I'm not talking about some exotic, strange, sensational thing on television. Every one of you in this room have the gift of healing. You can heal a relationship by being forgiving. You can heal a relationship by accepting forgiveness. You can heal a discouraged heart by a word of affirmation. Every one of us, all this week, can heal people with a word, with a look, with an act. These folks were healers, not herders. They were joyful people. Can you imagine singing and praying at midnight after you've had your back beaten and whipped? And then in the Philippian jailer's house, the whole house was filled with joy. You know, I imagine everybody in this room has been hurt at one time or another. I'm sure, you have, I'm sure all of us have been physically hurt, and I'm sure all of us have been emotionally hurt, mentally hurt. I had someone say to me this week, it is so painful to want to be doing something good and have that good misrepresented, misinterpreted, and misquoted, that hurts. It does hurt. But you know what God does with our hurts? You put them in an atmosphere of singing and praying, and He will heal the brokenhearted. And it just seems to me that anybody who's ever been hurt would not want to hurt anybody else. It just seems as illogical to me that if you've ever been hurt, you'd want to be a healer. What are we here for if not to help each other? Joyful and encouraging. Paul encouraged all the folks down at Lydia's house. Charlene Hunter Galt, back in the 60s, was one of two black students attending the University of Georgia during the civil rights issue and the days of turmoil that many of us remember. And they were in a sit-in 
in the lunch counter in Atlanta. People were saying horrible things to them. And the tendency was to say horrible things back. And the kind of leader of the group was a woman named Ruby Smith, who unfortunately died of cancer in her 20s, but who had a profound influence upon this TV journalist, then a student at the University of Georgia. And she said, Ruby would keep walking beside us and behind us during those terribly tense moments. And she'd whisper these words, don't forget why you're here. Not to fight, but to love. Don't forget why you're here. God didn't create us just to occupy space. He created us to be something and to do something. Don't forget it. God didn't put Trinity Baptist Church here just to enjoy these facilities. He put us here to share the Word of God with our city and with our world, whoever they are, whatever their needs, people in prayer meetings, street corners, or jails. The gospel is unconditional, and so is our ministry to them. And the invitation is not mine, it's his. Or the church is not mine, it is his. And his invitation to his church is whosoever will may come. Unconditional. Would you do that today? Come be a part of the life and fellowship of this church. You say, Bugner, how do I do that? Come down here, we'll explain it, nothing complicated. You don't have to bring any resume, any kind of proof of anything. You just come. That's it. Being willing to start. If you've never trusted Christ, believe him today. Trust him today. And come follow him today. Don't forget why you're here. You were not born just to occupy a few three score years and ten. You were born to meet God and to be used by him. Fulfill that destiny by starting today to follow him. Let's stand and let's sing together.